marketing is a little bit of an art. And I think sometimes with the focus, with the amount of data you can extract, like the ROAS and the CAC and the how efficient can we get and how much can we extract for like the one penny we want to spend and how many dollars can we get? I think sometimes we lose a little bit of the forest through the trees. And I, I love to just try to like remind people like sometimes doing branding really does help. Hello, my dearest CPGers. This episode is an absolute goldmine with my friend, Aaron Fasano. One of the things that I love to do on this podcast is to highlight the kind of people that I've come across who I think can be game changers of brands. And I think that our listeners are really gonna hear in this episode why Aaron is that exact kind of person you should look out for. She has the big CPG skill set, but she is in a lofty Pinterest mood border. She's honed her big time skills in the emerging brand world and is an action-oriented marketer. She is in the trenches with the sales and operations teams. And for that reason, she's really the best kind of person to explain to all of us, what does a CMO actually do or what should they do? As well as giving great marketing tips for early brands. I hope you get as much out of this as I did. Enjoy. Welcome to the Startup CPG Podcast. Today, I am thrilled to have Aaron Fasano, my friend, a seasoned marketer with over 20 years of experience and a decade in CPG. So from her early days in marketing, rising through the ranks, including seven years in marketing at Dole Foods, a classic CPG, up to starting her own brand and being CMO or Chief Marketing Officer at Core Foods, she has been at the forefront of driving innovation and growth in the emerging CPG world. One of her greatest joys professionally, I know, is helping small brands flourish, particularly at retail giants like Whole Foods and Target. She is a SKU mentor, and I'm also really proud to say that Erin for a long time was part of our startup CPG team. She was a managing editor, helping a lot of early brands get editorial coverage. Today, I am so excited to delve into a legitimate question that I still have, which is, what is a CMO? I've worked with some of the best marketers out there who are great have awesome insight, judgment, instincts, and you know impact on the business, but I still could never really tell you exactly what they do every day. So I am super excited to have Aaron here so Aaron can explain it all. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. All right. So let's get right into it. I love your career path. If somebody came to me and said, I want to be a CMO for a cool emerging brand, I would say, all right, here is the lab you can go to to build your experience to get it. You need to go to a great school, get good education, then go into probably a classic CPG house in marketing where you're going to get some of that awesome training and then get into the early brand world and figure out how to adapt your skills and you know start crushing it there. And then you can successively then work your way up to becoming the CMO and be really impactful in your role. So it kind of seems like you did that, but can you just take us through the full journey, please? I'm dying to hear it. Sure. I actually think it started when I was a kid. My seventh grade science fair project was a study of media. And I studied uh, ads that ran during Oprah, the NFL, and Nickelodeon to prove that media targeting exists. And of course, you know, one first place. Got Too bad you didn't. You could have been the next Google. <laughs> <laughs> if only. But I got bit by the bug early and I got into ad agencies right out of college and spent about the first seven years of my career doing that, working on all kinds of industries. Like I worked for McDonald's and Lexus and some hotel resorts in Las Vegas and really got to learn the tactics of marketing. I got great exposure to digital media when it was really emerging. I think we were on Facebook with Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino like in 20, 2012 or something. So it was really fun, like kind of learning and building as you go. But what I never really got was that closed loop on 
what's our marketing actually doing to the overall business? How are we really participating in the growth of the organization? And so that's why I went back and got my master's. I actually got it in finance because I knew I couldn't read a PNL or understand a cash flow statement. And so with that new fluency and the experience in marketing from my work life is when I went to Dole. So I was an entry-level marketer there in ABM, and I had probably the best mentor I could have had. He really took me under his wing, Stan. He taught me how to pull data out of IRI. He taught me how to run when it's time to do consumer testing. He taught me what a coupon was and what offer values work and what don't work and what's for trial driving and what's for basket building. But he also taught me how to operate with the rest of the organization. It was at Dole that I really learned, you got to make best friends with sales. You got to make best friends with ops. You got to make best friends with the R&D people. Because at the end of the day, the marketer is the voice of the consumer inside the organization. And so my job was really like to defend her and be her voice everywhere. So it was like a very like valuable experience, you know, learning basically all the tools in the toolbox and then leaving there and going to startups like Brandable, Sagely Naturals, Core Foods, where I am now, taking all of those like big company processes that matter when you have, you know, a billion dollars of sales and 300 staff members, bringing it down to, you know, sometimes teams of 10, 20, and allowing that nimbleness that you get from fewer people, but help you be successful and make better decisions faster. How do you find somebody like that? Because I mean, that sounds like the best situation possible. You find somebody who probably is really engaged with the company, which you don't always find at those big CPGs. There are a lot of people checked out, in my experience, who then also really identifies you as a talent, takes an interest in you. I mean, you get much more from that than you do, you know, I think from an MBA, which I also got. But I mean, that on the job training for me would have been way more valuable. How did you get so lucky? And now is he so kind to really do that for you? I think I just honestly got lucky to your point. That was the team that was hiring at the time. You know, Dole is actually a lot smaller than people realize. Our biggest marketing budget was actually the team I joined, but it was 25 million the year I joined, which is still kind of small for a brand you might think is very large. The marketing department had, I think, 12 people. So like still kind of a small organization. So in some ways it was flat. By the time I left, I was the director of the frozen fruit business, and I was having daily interaction with the division president who was like responsible for all of North America, because that was just like, we were running a little bit more entrepreneurially. So even though it was a big brand with lots of revenue and we got to practice and learn, I think because the organization itself was still kind of small, I got sort of the best of both worlds. Awesome. Okay. So after Dole, when you then started getting into the kind of world of successively smaller companies, probably at first before getting to core, what are then some of the things that you were learning and working on while you were adapting your skill set to the world of emerging brands? Oh my gosh, so many things. You know, I think I'd start by saying some of the emerging brands I joined didn't have a demand forecast. And then it made it very difficult to be sure how much inventory to produce. And then you'd kind of run into, you know, expiring inventory. So bringing in like processes that felt very straightforward or like very obvious, but that weren't really formalized, but also tried not to be very disruptive to the speed. So I think that was always the balance is how do you bring a little bit of process without disrupting how quickly the organization wants to move? In some cases, it was, hey, we need to write down how much we think we're going to sell on some piece of paper somewhere so that our ops leaders know what to do. And so the marketers know when we should be plussing up and down our our investments. Or in some cases, it's like I go to a brand like Sagely, and we really valued consumer insights there. That founder team was incredibly focused on who the consumer was. They knew her very well. Because I had done so much focus group work, like watching someone else lead it, I felt like, well, you know, I could probably lead a focus group. So we figured out a way to do it really scrappy. So that's the other thing is 
you kind of pick up all these skills from watching other pros do it. And then you can kind of get, you know, you can 80, 20 rule it and kind of do it a little bit scrappier and still get really good insights. I love hearing you say that. I tell people all the time. That's exactly my experience when I was at Just Egg. They had budget. I mean, you know, they had raised an enormous amount of money. So I I think, you know, when I got there, one of the first things I did was hire an expensive firm to run a conjoint because we were interested in figuring out pricing. And I don't know, it was 40, 50K, something like that. And then I looked at it and I was like, I could probably, yeah, get at least 80% of the way there on SurveyMonkey. And then through that, I figured out how to create a bare bones version of it that was incredibly effective. I learned how to do it from there, just running my own studies, fielding my own panels through the SurveyMonkey platform. I learned so much and then was just constantly creating incredible sales slides with consumer insights because I could just churn this stuff out. If we had a meeting coming up like, hey, what are Whole Foods consumers saying about our product right now? Like I could figure that out actually within a day with you know actual Whole Foods customers and it was super impactful. So I love hearing you say that. And I hope everybody out there listens to it also where, I mean, just be curious and try to figure things out when you're in this world of the early brands because it is the wild west out there. And when you do take that interest, pursue something and try to get great at it, you can be the person in this emerging brands world who knows how to do that the best. So I, I love it. Sorry, I, inter- I interrupted your flow though. So let's keep going. No, that's okay. I mean, to kind of build on that, also use the resources available to you. Like one great learning I took from the founding team at Sagely was they were leveraging their own email marketing list for insights. So we, they had their Sagely Insiders group. These were highly engaged consumers. We put them in their own their own Clavio list. And then I was just writing the monthly survey stuff we wanted to know, insights we felt like we needed. We knew we had a target meeting coming up. We'd ask them questions about their behaviors there. And just to your point, we'd turn them into great selling stories. Or we see brands like um, Midday Squares doing this kind of thing all the time on their Instagram stories. Like, tell us how much you want want to see us at Costco. I'm sure that's going into a selling story that they're bringing into that buyer meeting later. So there's ways to get really, really scrappy, especially as you look to support your sales organization. Awesome. All right. So how did this all come to play when you started your own brand, Starry Side? And, you know, where you had to do obviously a lot more than just marketing. And I think, you know, already talking to you now and also having had lots of incredible chats with you before, I'm always really impressed with how deep you can go into other functions as well, which I know you probably had to in that role. Yeah, Starry Side was really born out of a moment in my life where I was like, I feel like I really could do this. Uh, I was with someone who I value very much, Liz Seeley. I was her client at Dole. We are sort of brand friends. And we've done a lot of like work together over the years. And we were just sort of like spitballing one day over the phone, like dreaming up what could be. She's very imaginative. And we both are moms. And we had this sort of shared bond over like wishing for more from the kids' beverage space. And the more we got to talking about it, the more we felt like there really was an opportunity there. I, I sort of tell the story now. Michelle Obama entered it. So we must have been on to something. But, you know, what we really learned from that experience or what I really learned from that experience is that choosing a partner who has the same, I think, end term vision as what you wanted, as what your goal is really matters. And we didn't, Liz and I didn't really take enough time at the beginning to align on how we wanted to grow the business. So we were a great team at building the brand. You know, I really wanted to lead the ops and finance functions because I don't do that in my day-to-day life. So I found the co-man and worked with him to, you know, build the product out. She really led a lot of the branding efforts, which is her bread and butter. Um, and it really felt like we were like going in the right direction. But as you know, sometimes things don't always go the way you want them to, but it was still a great learning experience. And I really value the opportunity to, to be the one dealing with the co-man because now in my day-to-day life, I know what my ops lead is going through. When she tells me she's trying to get something done, or she's leading for an answer, I can so much more relate to it now than before. 
I love that. And again, from my time at Just Ag, I volunteered to be a product manager for about six months on the Just Mayo brand. And that was so enlightening to me of just figuring out all of the different competencies that exist on the team that are required to work well with a Coleman, the, cha- yeah, the challenges of hearing back from them and how to massage the relationship. And it, it gave me so much insight for then when I was the CEO of Machu Picchu starting up and then just figuring out like basically how to get that thing to market and how to be creative and really focus on the relationship with the Coleman and, you know, like never just try to hammer them on things because like whatever you're dealing with, you're going to have worse stuff to deal with with them later. So you need to sort of uh, save some of those cards for later. And, you know, ultimately they do really want to help you and they're just our things are going to go wrong. It's always going to happen. That's really awesome to hear. And then with your, we all know beverage is hard. I wish that there were better options out there for kids, especially I think because parents, I think, don't know what beverages to choose for their kids and left to the their own devices. They're probably just like, all right, have a monster, you know, which the kids, <laughs> like, not just like, you know, toddlers, but like older kids, even it would be great to have some better options for them. So going back, though, if you were starting over with Starry Side, if you had another crack at it, is there one or two things you really would have done differently? There's one big thing I would have done differently. I really felt like so the product we made was basically a flavored water in a can. The vision was an option that's better than a juice box, but still interesting to kids. We put it in a can because they all want soda, but mom doesn't want to give soda. So that was the idea. We fortified it with vitamins. And in retrospect, I think we could have built a stronger product platform. So like it probably needed some level of functionality beyond vitamins. There are plenty of options for a mom to get vitamins into her child. And I just think we didn't push ourselves hard enough on like the product offering itself. Of course, we did our research. We did our quant surveys. We put it in the mommy Facebook groups. Like we got input that led us to where we ended up. But I think in retrospect and knowing where the market ended up now, two years later, I think that we probably missed an opportunity to push a little bit harder there. But yeah. I wonder if there are there any tablets that are focused on kids drinks. I have really recently started drinking more tablets that add in electrolytes and vitamins. And it's so convenient. I don't have to lug a bunch of cans and I don't feel as wasteful. Also just dropping a little tablet into the water from home. I wonder, I'd I'd be really interested to see somebody nail that one where it's still like fun and flavorful and kids enjoy it. But, you know, it feels like a treat. You know, kids are always asking for stuff. So hopefully it could be something that they would ask for. Yeah. And imagine the partnership with the Stanley Tumblr of tomorrow, you know, like, I mean, you can blow blow it out. I've never seen anybody so happy as at Christmas when I gave my niece a Stanley Tumblr from the Taylor Swift tour. Like somehow on eBay, I found one that was like from the actual tour and gave it to her. Oh my gosh. It was craziness. So I cemented my status as the Funkle, the fun uncle with that one. (laughs) I'll be waiting for mine from you for Valentine's Day. (laughs) (laughs) All right, perfect. Okay, so getting back to it then. So take me into then getting to... Core. Core, I think, was your first official CMO role. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So um, when the core team hired me, I was actually um, brought on really to focus on innovation. Their formulator, who's an external like R&D food scientist, genius, frankly, he also did my star water and we worked together at Dole. So I knew him through sort of, you know, the grapevine of being around just like we everybody knows everybody in our industry. So it was a great opportunity for me to like kind of come in and get to do the kind of the fun stuff, product development. Um, But really quickly, I mean, I'm talking like three months in, I realized, oh, no one's really like that focused on 
trying to grow the D2C business. So there's not really like a focus on Amazon. We don't really have an email, like a tight email program. And and so I kind of just more and more as I saw there was not enough people, you know, startup, like there's not enough time in the day to do everything. Um, I just kind of took on more and more and more in the marketing function. And, you know, after a year, they promoted me. And I think because I had just sort of demonstrated, like, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I want to grow this business. And I think a lot of that was a strong partnership with sales as well. I learned pretty early on that sales and marketing are going to be like love, hate. And I really feel strongly like you can't hear the full voice of the consumer without hearing the retailer's voice too, because the retailer knows her guest. So I have to hear the retailer's guest as well as like the consumer talking to me and they're, they, you really do have to be able to listen to both. And sometimes there'll be a conflict and they won't always align perfectly, but there's always a way through that. So it was really fun actually having the opportunity to sort of be in the lead role. You know, I'd been on the leadership team in my sort of initial role at core, but really taking the reins and like building a marketing plan for this brand that had never really like written down a marketing plan for a full year, sort of a fleshed out way. We all work everywhere. So I had the whole company to my home and we like presented it in my living room. And it was like, you know, again, like, hey, we're going to get scrappy, but I think it matters that we all get together and really try to like, I wanted to really build that sense of brand pride with the team. So, you know, it's been a fun adventure and, and sort of trying to take the brand to that next level. So. What is a full year marketing plan? I remember when I was at Machu Picchu, we knew we needed to do that. And it we were like, okay, what format is that? Is that a slide or what? Like, well, you know, kind of like a calendar timeline type slide with yeah, a bunch of different yeah. swim lanes on it. Or, you know, what is it? And how did you know how to do it? And remembering well, a lot, a lot of the people listening right now are probably really early founders who would like to try to hack that on their own. So let's give them some tips. Totally. Well, I'm a marketer, so I speak in slides. So my brain goes to, you know, the 90 page presentation, but it's my job to get that down to two slides that any salesperson can walk into a retailer meeting with. So I generally think about like the two key pieces of information is yes, marketing calendar. I plan on an annual calendar, you plan on whatever calendar you want, but I always start there with all the tactics. Um, and actually, I really start with sales input first. So before I really do anything from any marketing layering, because the salespeople have to plan so far in advance, their plans for the next year are usually done by like June or July. So they kind of know what they're going to be doing. So I like to lay those on a calendar first and see where are my big windows of like, you know, where there's a lots of common promotion. Okay, everyone's running promos in January, everyone's in April, you know, whatever it is. And then I sort of think about marketing in concentric circles, right? So then it's like, all right, we have our trade plan done. Then I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to set D2C aside for just a second and think more about retail. So then what shopper marketing programs can I implement that supports these key strategic retailers, but that doesn't step on my trade programming? So some retailers, you're not going to want to also run a coupon program while you're on a discount. So maybe at Whole Foods, if I see that, hey, you know, we're going to go six months without a promotion, I'm going to run maybe a demo program here. I'm going to run maybe uh, some kind of sampling program specific to Whole Foods. So I sort of start filling in the blanks on my most important retailers. And then I sort of take a side step to D2C. I like to make sure that the D2C programming kind of lines up with the trade programming. So again, if we're all doing New Year, New You, then we probably need a program for D2C that supports that and try to start layering in like how the D2C and Amazon like discounting and programs are all going to work because it sort of all works better when everyone's saying the same thing all the time. And that helps you build your like organic comm strategy. If everyone, again, is all going to be on the same type of deal, then you can be talking about that in social. Your influencers or your affiliates can also be talking about that. And then you sort of build out from there and out from there. So sort of depending on how the size of your business and how much you want to spend. I know one question I get all the time is, how do I know how much money I'm supposed to spend on marketing? <laughs> and it's not an easy question to answer because it really is different depending on the stage of the business. 
your objectives as it relates to profitability and growth. But the sort of, I would say, traditional rule of thumb, if you're at a big CPG, which none of us are, but at a big CPG, they're going to say like a rule of thumb is 20%. But that's not for a startup. If 20% of your, let's say, you know, you're making maybe, let's say you're doing $200,000 in a year, that's not really going to be enough to buy you enough programming. So I'd say my suggestion to most small CPGs is identify the most strategic, important retail channels, make sure you blow those out, whether it's a retailer or D2C or some combination of both, and then own the things that you don't have to pay for and do them excellently. So have a strong plan for email, have a strong plan for your social content, and like make sure that those things that you don't have to pay for are really working hard, including like forming relationships with trade press. I know you've got a lot of great relationships there. You've done a great job bringing a lot of those people to the community and using your LinkedIn, because those are going to be the ways that you start getting the buzz and you just start building. And then you can build enough revenue to justify more spend. And it's sort of a cycle. Well, a couple of things that I want to comment on. The first is, I bet because I knew you, you'll say yes to this, although I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you Mm -hmm. have some kind of a template for a marketing plan that you would be willing Mm -hmm. to link in the show notes and share with the community? Absolutely. Awesome. Okay, that'll be really helpful for people to see because it is visual, what marketers do, just visually, what does it look like? And then kind of work backwards to get the info to fill it in. So check the show notes for that. And then secondly, pretty interesting to hear you talk about starting from some of the activities like sales activities. And I I am a sales guy. So that makes me really happy. Like, all right, I've got Erin on my team. She's going to support me with this retailers. One of the things that like, I just don't understand as well is how do you build a brand for the long term, right? So someone might say like, that's great. You're lining up your budget probably these days more important than ever to be really efficient with it and make sure that it's driving revenue. But you know, where's the part of the budget if any, that should go towards building a long-term brand and, you know, that will live in people's hearts kind of outside of the specific sales driving activities. Yeah. You know, for some small brands, that's really going to come from, again, those like owned places, like your website content, like even your homepage can make you feel like you're a member of the brand. All of your email marketing comms, even if it's a promotion, it, it should still obviously be in your brand voice, look like your brand. You know, if you're a founder-led driven brand and your founder is like the face of the brand, hopefully they'd be doing a lot of thought leadership. So really it's about those things that you can afford to do, making sure that they're always building the brand. I think about a brand like a promise. This is something I learned from the brand strategist who I sort of admired in my time at RPA. His name is David Byrne. And he always articulated like the promise that you want the brand to deliver, you know, and in some cases, and I think a lot of us, it's the product promise. You know, we are always going to give you like this healthy, nutritious thing. But if you can imagine what that like higher order wishes, like for Starry Side, you know, obviously we wanted a better for you drink that was better than juice, but we were actually really trying to inspire kids to be more creative because what we found through some research is that kids who are better hydrated are tend to be more creative. They have like some scientific evidence to back that up. So we were really trying to build this tie on like, take a walk on the start. Like the sunny side is optimistic, but starry side is the creative side. And everything we did was about trying to push through this concept of, kids and creativity and how, you know, we don't want to color inside the box. We don't want to stay inside the lines. We wanted everything to feel very like creative and freeing. And so those are the places where you'll want to take inspiration to think beyond like what's on the box and those product points of difference, but how you talk about your brand. So it's cool to hear. So the way you're talking about it, what I'm hearing is 
you would prioritize spending the budget on things that are really going to move the needle and speak to retailers and reach consumers where they need to be and drive sales at accounts. And the priority ones are the ones that matter the most. Like if you're in Whole Foods and Target, not getting it right there, you're going to have a whole world of problems. So, and then I also like that you mentioned almost like some of the B2B marketing, like LinkedIn, probably anybody who knows me, or if I'm connected with you on LinkedIn, you see me marketing to you probably on LinkedIn. And I'm always on there just with, you know, I think my personal brand is, I mean, that is who I am, which is very, you know, positive energy. And I love supporting other people and then just sharing really exciting stuff that I'm working on and celebrating wins with the community. It was incredibly effective for me running a beverage brand. And even, I mean, our design team just working on assets for me that I would actually only really be sharing on LinkedIn because we didn't have a lot of followers at the time. And still, it was just incredibly effective, like, you know, great graphics and researching the retailers and how to talk to them and, you know, spending a lot of time on those posts. I actually was finding a lot of retailers like, hey, yeah, no, I I mean, I've seen you on LinkedIn. So mm-hmm. you know, I, saw that, I saw that data slide that you posted on there. I guess I need to talk to you if you're such a hot brand. I mean, what a great way to start a conversation, right? Rather than just blind pitching someone who's never heard of you. And so I found all of that marketing really helpful as well, even though it wasn't necessarily directly to consumers. Maybe some of the people bought our product, but um, just as a way to get on shelf, which then gets you a lot of impressions to consumers. And then there's also... I'm just going to build on that. There's a whole basket of people who you're probably engaging with, like through your broker network or your merchandisers, your brand ambassadors. I see all the time in the startup CPG Slack, people talking about engaging with them. If you can find ways to really inspire those people to understand your brand message quickly, I mean, those people become an army for you. They're at the shelf. I mean, it drives my husband crazy. I was actually commenting today on Lauren Oakley, the founder of, well, I've forgotten the name of her brand, but it's Catalina Crunch. She said something about how she finds her husband like went to a store and took a picture of a shelf set for her. I'm constantly doing that, but also I'm like talking to the people who are shopping the set. Like, so what are you looking for? Well, why'd you pick that brand? Oh, like I'm always trying to like learn a little bit more from them. And then one thing I learned from like my old school Dole guys, like when I would go walk the floor with them, they always had VIP coupons. So they were not letting you leave our section of the store without making you take a Dole product with them. And I know it seems small and it's obviously not scalable, but it's just those like little interactions that like help you feel like it's giving you the reps, like talking about your brand all the time, like you get to the point faster. It's just a great little way, I think, to enable, a, you know, if you're going to have people in the stores, you might as well have them. Working I like hearing that. And you know, they're basically like, you can be there at your booth at Expo with all of the passion in the world, which is great. But you know, what's even better is just anybody from the community who knows the buyer before they come over saying, Oh, that's a good product. It's a good brand. Mm-hmm. Like you're pretty much if someone does that, who they trust, oh, you're in a good place. So I, I really like thinking about it that way. And then, you know, one question that I had had, you know, when I've started out before is like, hey, how much do we need to worry about Instagram followers, because, oh my gosh, it is so much effort and expense to actually try to grow that channel. If you're trying to impress retailers with the presence or just trying to have an impact with content that you're creating, right? Otherwise, you're just like hitting golf balls out into the ether, like very beautiful branded golf balls if nobody is there (laughs) on the receiving end, right? And you can... I mean, I don't know, some people would consider their Instagram almost like a website, but then you also have to have your website and both of those things are very expensive. So how do you view the importance of social channels, I would say, in the early days for a brand? I actually think it's pretty important because I think, you know, it's going to be small. 
I mean, I think for Starry Side, we only got ourselves up to maybe four or 500 followers, but it gives you, again, it kind of gives you those reps. You're learning what to say. You're honing your messaging. I was feeling a little bit shy for our brand to actually be on the other side of the camera, maybe going back to what would I do differently. I should have been more willing to put myself out there to tell like our story from like my perspective. I think it would have been more impactful. It would have been more authentic. And I think that's my big learning from the midday team is that like authenticity works. But you also kind of have to like do a lot of stuff to see what's going to work well. I mean, this is going to sound silly, but I run my kids um, school's social media account and we've kind of learned over lots of reps. I mean, I'm putting out content every single day to, to promote their little like school here in LA. And I'm like, okay, I feel like we've kind of got the hang of what this thing is. And we're really starting to feel the traction growing in our little like pocket of the world here. So you know, it is hard, but I also find that most CPG founders, I don't want to say all, but most, they started the brand out of a passion. Like I'm allergic to gluten, so I need to make bread or I feel pain. So I'm going to leverage CBD into a product that will help me. And so they tend to kind of already have that like consumer insight built in because it's them. And so they can be that voice. And I really do feel like it's a lot of work, but I think if you're able to make time for it, because I think it will eventually pay dividends. But I wouldn't worry about vanity metrics, like how many followers you have. Like, you know, you have how many you have. Have you been growing them? Have they been falling? That may be more useful information than just how many you have. Yeah, I like it. And I, I mean, I just always felt like, oh, like, okay, just some picture of your product. Like, who's going to engage with that? I don't follow brands on Instagram. Like, I don't care if they post a picture of their product, but like, oh, okay, maybe you put someone interesting in that and they're talking about it. Maybe you see them trying the product and their reaction to it. Or it's like liquid death style where it's very entertaining and creative or like, really, I think you have to give people a reason probably until you're at the size of like, you know, Poppy or something where you can just throw a can on there and everyone loves it so much at this point that they're just going to hit like and grow your brand. That's yeah, pretty interesting to hear about. So thank you. So let's say if you are just an early person starting out, you know, what would you say, hey, like, make sure you're at least doing this if you're like a, you know, one, two person team on the marketing front. And, you know, as you grow, when do you think they should be thinking about bringing on a dedicated marketer? I always ask people to re- make sure they revisit their package. Um, when you start D2C and you've built this like great, beautiful package that works really well for selling online, just like double check that it's going to work on the shelf. You know, sometimes, for example, maybe you're in the frozen set and you're right behind a door and you don't have that like physical barrier on a web page, or maybe your packaging is a beautiful light yellow and it's just not going to pop with the contrasting white that you pick. So I always like early on ask people to make sure that before they get too far along as they move into brick and mortar to gut check the packaging that they've designed that's been working so well online still works at retail. And if I can add on to that, I would say find people who you trust and say, please don't just tell me that you like this. What do you actually think about it? If you give people that permission, they will tell you. And you know me, just because I do meet a lot of brands, I'm trying to get better about saying like, hey, okay, yeah, I'll give you feedback. Do you want me to say that I like it? Or do you want to hear my opinion? And sometimes, honestly, I'll crap all over it. I'm like, look, this is a sleeve and it's terrible. Like this looks like you made it at home. It's awful. You need to run, not walk and go back and get a better sleeve provider. And why does your UPC look all skewed? Like it just looks like a really low quality drink. And if I drink it, it's going to taste worse because it looks low quality. And like probably the person turns around and is pissed off at me for saying it. But 
a bunch of times they've come back and be like, that was actually like the first time somebody gave it to me that way. And now I see all of it. And, you know, I wish I had been able to hear that from people, I think, sooner and, and had sought it out instead of just focusing on this beautiful thing that we were in love with that we had created and hadn't really gone out and gotten some tips from people that I think would have really, really helped. Yeah. It's your biggest billboard is your package because it's on everything. It's on the shelf. It's everywhere. But then I would say like the next most important thing is your email marketing program, just as it relates to getting recurring revenue, making sure that you've got your flow set up correctly. If you don't offer subscription, find a way to offer them. I realize it's a little bit counterintuitive in my brain sometimes. Like, am I really going to expect someone to subscribe to like a nutrition bar? But you would be surprised how many consumers like the convenience of having. So you kind of get this like nice little baseline of revenue that's sort of always coming in and supporting your other activities. So making sure your email marketing program and that you have subscriptions and appropriate bundles kind of all set up on your website, I think kind of gives you a little bit of that freedom because you know that you're going to have this stability. Because once you get to retail, as you know, you're going to get a big order one day and then you're going to you're going to famine and then it's peace and then it's famine and then you're going to run a promo and then the distributor is going to load in and then you're going to be like waiting for orders forever. So it, it is sort of nice to have that stability. But again, always keeping in your brand tone, in your brand voice. And like, like I always say, the things that you own Make sure that they're excellent and perfect. Your social, your web, whatever you're pushing out to the press when you're trying to do outreach. You know, we all try to do press, you know, obviously with the trade press, but then, you know, beyond that and anything you're having your founder go out and say, really make sure you're saying the same thing over and over. And one thing you mentioned early on is that you had a lot of experience running focus groups and then kind of learned how to do that scrappily yourself. What would you recommend for early founders as they're getting their product out there? Maybe it's in the prototype type stage or just early versions of the product. Like tactically, how can they do that? What should they be? How should they set it up? What kind of questions should they be asking and what can they learn? Yeah. The first thing that's really important for running a focus group, just like side note, little tip is to tell them that you aren't going to get fired if they don't like your idea. Because I found that sometimes people get nervous. Like they think, oh no, I'm going to cost this lady her job. So I always, I'm always very open. Like I do work for the company, but these aren't my ideas. I'm just here to help like get the feedback. So that always kind of helps. But where I find people, typically I find them as they're already our shoppers. But if you're before having any shoppers, you can use your friends. I also kind of recommend using a friend of a friend. So maybe you're looking for moms. You don't want to ask like your best friend. She's going to have a harder time to your point telling you things you don't want to hear. But maybe she can recommend a friend or two. And then in the case of the example I gave for Sagely, I had them join a Google Meet. And then I used a whiteboard function in Google and like had them, I wrote a product concept. There's sort of a standard format. I'm also happy to share an example of that after the show where you kind of outline like the consumer problem. You know, I'm hungry in the middle of the day. The brand solution, core nutrition bars will keep you full because we have a lot of fiber. And then like a blurb about what the product, you know, what the offering is, the reasons to believe the price where you find it, et cetera. There's like a standard little format. And I had these people just like mark it up, like circle the things you like, you don't like. And for Sagely, it was really important because we were really trying to find like our next function to address. So we addressed sleep, we addressed pain, and we addressed anxiety. And so we were looking for like, what's the next like line of products? So I had the concepts were very different. Some were, you know, daily wellness, we had some sexual health ideas. And so it really helped us prioritize them. So after I had the consumers kind of mark them up, I had them rank them. And then it was kind of like they had sort of an open discussion with each other, even like debating. And it was really interesting to hear you know, how they talk to each other about the product as well. So, you know, I always say you got to take consumer input with a grain of salt, particularly when it's around pricing there. Everyone's always going to tell you they want it cheaper. So just know that and as long as you're competitive with the other brands and the category on the shelf that you're playing with, whether it's virtual shelf or a real shelf, 
that's where you're going to want to be. So don't be discouraged if they want it cheaper because I always say that. But yeah, there are certainly ways to try to find people who are willing to mark up a piece of paper. You could do the same thing with the package design. Circle the thing you like the most. Circle the thing that makes you want to try it. Cross out the thing that looks the worst to you. Like Things like that. Consumers like to write on the paper. It makes it easier for them than having to tell you what they like and don't like. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it that way. And it makes me think like, you know, one thing I don't believe in is innovation by committee, like just getting so many different perspectives out there, you will get lost, right? But also still needing to be open to hear things that are different from the vision that your team already has. So, you know, definitely seems like a balance. But, you know, I think there are also different things you can do, like once you've spent all the time doing this, just like show it to somebody for one second and see what they think it is, right? And like out of context, or then maybe show it to somebody on a shelf. And then you'll just hear things you've never expected. Like, what is this even? Is this like a cookie? And you're like, no, it's a cracker. Like, oh, okay. And you might learn something really important from that. You know, I think when you're a bigger brand, you get to get away with it more because people understand what it is already. But early days, I mean, I just, I really believe simpler is better and, you know, really like not trying to NASCAR your product out there and put every little thing that you love about it, which is really hard because you've spent time building it so thoughtfully and choosing every single ingredient that's better for people. But at the end of the day, yeah, what are really the top, maybe not even three, the top one or two reasons why someone would pick this up? Okay, make that obvious to them and let's just go after that, at least in the early early days and probably also leads you to have to fix less things on your packaging later on, as we all always do have to everybody just know that you are going to have to change your packaging frequently <laughs> as you fix yes. this. So after you do that work, and then you need to go and socialize results with your team, you know, what's it been like for you? It, sometimes you have you know, tough time convincing people that things need to change. Maybe you have a CEO or who's a founder who actually created the packaging and you're telling them like, we really need to change this thing. What's that been like for you? What kind of tools and tricks have you used to use your influence subtly, but effectively? Yeah. When I have to deliver bad news, it kind of depends on like how bad the news is, you know, like and exactly what we're communicating. But a lot of times I'll kind of look to the other members of the leadership team and try to at least find one alignment or, you know, consult with another member of the leadership team so that, you know, perhaps when we're having the conversation, that other person is able to support my position or, you know, like chime in in a productive way. When I'm receiving feedback from the CEO or founder, maybe on something he's unhappy with, for example, I really do my best to let them talk. What I find often is if I can just not say anything and not because I want to be silent, but I really want to hear what the actual issue is. Are we frustrated that revenue is down and this mistake that I made maybe exasperated some like P&L related issue? Are we feeling like we're not all saying the same thing on the brand? And, and I really try to give them this space to express whatever it is, is the challenge. And then I, I really do try to take a beat. Thanks for that feedback. Let's get back on the phone tomorrow. Like, let me ponder. When I'm bringing bad feedback forward or a challenge forward, I really don't do that until I have a plan. Unless it's really, really, really bad news. Let's say we find out we don't get accepted into some customer line review that mattered to us. It's like, okay, so get together with the sales leader. A, it's first, we're going to follow up with the buyer. This is what we said to the buyer. This is what we're asking the buyer. Like we're trying to understand why there was a no. If we can find that out, then it's, hey, we didn't get into, let's just say Whole Foods, for example. We reached out to the buyer and the buyer's feedback was X and Y. Sometimes it's very helpful to have that retailer feedback when you have to deliver particularly packaging or product news. Like they just didn't really feel like it was innovative enough, you know, like protein is a great measure, but you know, right now everybody in this category is using adaptogens or whatever it is. 
Sometimes you can leverage outsiders to help carry some of that weight. And then again, you kind of built up those few people to help you deliver news that's difficult, but it's never easy. And it does sort of take a little bit of finesse. But I think those are really good pieces of advice. And I imagine that you do this already, which is like when you are presenting the stuff they don't necessarily want to hear, making sure that there's data there, right? Not just like, well, like, wait, is it because you think that? No, no, you know, here's the data that we're getting from people with the feedback. Then so, okay, you can choose not to believe it, but this is database. And then I, that's music to my ears. You talking about like, I come with a plan to actually address it, not just like, hey, people don't like this. What are we going to do? Like, no. I'm a boss. Like I'm coming here. I've got this. Like we need to change this. Here's how we can do it. And we can add this to the packaging next time around. And it's going to look fine. And it's going to be this kind of font. And it actually could help us that way this way. Like that's a dream for anybody to have somebody like that on their team. And again, I really just have to mention, I'm so impressed how, you know, you're a marketer, but you're really focused on the sales wins. And I know we did a Kroger presentation together where we shared with the community Mm -hmm. a few episodes back about all the options that you can pick on Kroger. And I was really blown away how much you actually understand not just about the marketing options, but about the go-to-market options with Kroger and the kind of distribution things you need to consider and so much about their chain. I have to say, I think that's really uncommon for a marketer to actually understand that much. And I think probably makes you extremely effective at the job. So just good for you on that. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, next question. Let's say you're starting a brand and number one objective for you now is I need to drive velocity at retail. What are you going to do? Tell me the top ways to do it. Because honestly, isn't that what it's for a lot of us, given how expensive D2C is right now? Isn't that the name of the game? And what's the secret? Give us the number one secret sauce. (laughs) The number one secret sauce is do what the retailer offers. So most of the retailers offer programs. Kroger is a great example of one, but they know their guests. And so leverage what they already know and the programs that they build that you can buy from them are going to be effective ways to drive velocity. They're also, in many cases, going to help the retailer's bottom line. And in some cases, the buyers are actually measured on that. So, you know, they have a measure called vendor income, for example, at Target. And the buyers have to bring in a certain amount of vendor income from buying programs like demos or buying their Criteo paid search programming. So you're kind of doing a double service, right? You're keeping your buyer happy because you're keeping her vendor income bucket full. And you also know that these are tried and true tools that other brands are using and that you can really see your velocities change. When you start to get more national distribution, you can add in other types of programming. There's lots of trial driving options. You know, I really actually like to execute brand partnerships at Kroger. We did a really fun one with Mush. We were brand friends and neighbors. We sat next to each other on the shelf, but we targeted different people and we could because Kroger's data is so robust about households, we could really see the cross penetration. And we did a whole combined coupon slash social slash D2C like big program together that our buyer happened to stumble upon, which was so great. So I think there's a whole bunch of different ways. Again, once you get a little bit more than just the regional retailers, where you're going to have to really be limited to what you can do in your in your regional market. That's another sort of little piece of advice. If you can, if you can grow in one regional area and kind of like win in your backyard, that's how Clara puts it from Unite Food. She really wants to win in the LA area, win in our backyard. And you can then do a little bit more. If you're concentrated enough in your distribution, actually ran a test for core in the LA area. We were in both Ralph's and Vaughn's. I felt like, you know, that covers almost the entire market. Plus we were a sponsor of Mammoth and Big Bear. And so it was during January of last year. And so it built a whole like 360 program that really ran from the top to the bottom of the funnel. So at the top of the funnel, I have out of home billboards like 
good things happen in the cold, which of course, Core is a refrigerated bar. And that was kind of my tie back to the retailer. I got Ralph's and Vaughn's approval to use their logos on our out-of-home boards. Then when you went into the store, you could see my piece of POP hanging right by the shelf with those like more detailed reasons to believe, you know, the fiber and the protein and all the like the things that you care about at like the point of decision in the app on both of the retailers offering a coupon at the same time. So it was really like trying to build a case for like when you have this like concentrated geography, you can maybe place some bigger bets. I built a whole brand tracking system that I wrote. I wrote a brand tracker all by myself and did a before and after so I could demonstrate how awareness changed from point before and after. And of course, use spins data to augment the story that we were telling. So there's certainly ways that you can find a way to kind of keep your penetration in certain geographies tight. You can also do a lot more and like replicate what you might want to do on a national level, but at a more regional level. Amazing. All right. I guess, yeah, one question I wanted to come back to if you're, yeah, let's say you are launching that new brand, how are you going to think about spending, by the way, on all the different channels that you have right now? Like how much would you be putting into D2C right now? Obviously, depending on what kind of a product it was versus retail versus just some general market, like branding stuff. Yeah. So I think D2C kind of depends on whether or not you're doing a beverage, let's be honest, they're real heavy. And so it kind of creates like some P&L related challenges. Depends also on how much you care about profitability and whether or not you have retail distribution. So I tend to prioritize retailers, I think, because I know how hard it is to move velocity. So if I had $1 and I had Whole Foods and D2C, I'd spend it at Whole Foods all day long because I know that I can, I'm kind of in control of my own destiny on D2C. So when I get my next cash injection, I can like revisit growing that. I don't really have that same opportunity at Whole Foods. You kind of get one. And then if you don't win or you aren't able to maintain your shelf space, you may not be able to come back to them. And so right or wrong or indifferent, that's how my brain thinks about it. Because once you get that retailer shelf, you really do want to hold on to it. So you can grow from it, build from it, learn from it. And it really is. I think I saw just yesterday, I think it was McKinsey. They put out like a 2023, like look back or no, it was look forward on 2024, like health and wellness, just like a consumer study. And the number one place people learn about brands is the shelf. And I think we all think it's friends and family, but it's the shelf. And I was like, oh, I love seeing that because it really I is. Saw that. You did? I okay, saw yeah. that study. It was fascinating for me because, yeah, I, I figured like with retail, just getting on shelf gets you tons of impressions. When you're there, you know, they say consumers need to see you, I don't know, seven times or whatever before they'll purchase you for the first time. Yeah, getting on shelf actually does a lot, especially if it's a good shelf and you look good there and it's a cool store and people see you in that context. At some point, probably they're going to think maybe they should check it out, right? And for me, anyways, it felt more efficient to do that than trying to do it in the unlimited universe of D2C, at least especially for beverage, where it's so heavy to ship and it's the price points are lower and getting people to try stuff when it's a 12 pack is kind of hard. So one question yeah. I have for you is how are you thinking about D2C, like your own website versus stuff like Amazon? Yeah. Well, I kind of want to start by just saying something a little controversial. I do. Marketing is a little bit of an art. And I think sometimes with the focus, with the amount of data you can extract, like the ROAS and the CAC and the how efficient can we get and how much can we extract for like the one penny we want to spend and how many dollars can we get? I think sometimes we lose a little bit of the forest through the trees. And I, I love to just try to like remind people like sometimes doing branding really does help. I mean, if you have the luxury of, you know, being able to execute an event that, I don't know, maybe in partnership with Air One and, and then you can get some good social content out of it. And maybe, you know, it's, I don't know, it's $10,000 spend. And that sounds like a lot, but you can really find a way to maximize that one day event and make it feel bigger than it is. You're not gonna be able to measure that ROAS, but you're going to see it in velocity at your shelf. And so I always just try to like, before I get into a whole thing about D2C, I always, I feel like I struggle with 
how to place those like bets between those two things, because it is a little bit more predictable, especially when you have a lot of data to work from as you try to build your D2C business. But in any event, in terms of how I think about my own brand versus Amazon, it's kind of a hard question to answer because in both of the cases, in both of the brands that I worked at, Sagely was CBD brand. So we had to build a whole separate line, excuse me, of products that were acceptable for Amazon. And so we were really focused on D2C because of that. Core is a refrigerated nutrition bar. So we are by nature, not FBA, which makes it very difficult to compete in a very crowded protein bar space. So I'd say in both cases, I just, by nature of the way the business is operated, prioritize D2C. But I also think, you know, strategically, there are reasons why that makes sense. You obviously own the consumer. You can talk to her again. You can retarget her. You can move her up to other products. It's easier to introduce new things. But of course, Amazon does often bring scale, particularly if you can find a niche where there's maybe less competition. Protein bars is not a space where there is less competition. So I think it sort of depends a little bit on your product and your price point and what else is available on Amazon. It's funny when people say things like, oh, that's a competitive category. I always say, well, every category is competitive. If you think there's one that, <laughs> there's one that isn't, like, let's do a business together. Let's go. But I would still also say like, okay, what are the most competitive ones? I would say, yeah, protein bars, granola, maybe just because I feel like these are, yeah, these are things that like people make at home and then they're like, well, I should launch this business and they do. And there isn't a huge tech barrier to launching something Mm -hmm. like that. So then, yeah, you do see a lot of competition in the market, but that's great to hear. So Aaron, there are so many other questions I would love to ask you, but we are coming up to the end here. So I am going to cut us off, but... I would really love to ask you because anybody listening to the last hour knows you just dropped a ton of info and we're just scratching the surface. Is there anything that you can leave people with for like, you know, any ways that people can follow you or connect with you or things that you're interested in? Just ways for people to just generally get more Aaron Fasano in their lives? Oh my gosh, I'd love more in Fasano in everyone's lives. You can obviously find me on Start CPG Slack. I really make an effort to be there and answer questions that I know the answers to. Try not to weigh in when I don't know. I'm also, you can find me on LinkedIn. And I really just love, I love trying to help founders of brands who really are trying to change the world for whatever their like niche is and just do the best I can to like, hey, yeah, I have the Whole Foods reset schedule. Here you go. Or you need help writing a marketing plan to launch you into Walmart? Sure. Like, let's have a conversation. So I'm here as a resource for anyone who has questions, who wants help, who wants to hang out and have a great time at Expo. I'll be with you guys for a little while in your booth too. So All right. Aaron, by the way, are you able to work with other brands? I feel like everybody listening to this is going to clamor to reach out to you. Is that something that you have space for? Yeah, absolutely. I have a a lot of brands that I love to help in my free time. So I'd love to help anyone who needs a consultant for a quick conversation or a longer project. I'm here to talk about that. Great. And the best way then is to hit you on LinkedIn or do you want to drop your email or anything? Yeah, my email is my name, Aaron, with the letter M like Mary, Fasano at gmail.com. All right, great. Aaron, thank you so much for sharing this wealth of experience and insights with us. Thank you again for all of the help that you've given to the Startup CPG team and the community at large, especially answering a lot of those really difficult to answer questions in the marketing channel, which we super appreciate. So thank you again for just joining us on this podcast. I think it would be really hard to measure how much impact this is going to have for all the people that are going to hear this. And please, again, check the show notes for some of the cool resources that we got Aaron to commit to sharing with us on this podcast. (laughs) So Aaron, my friend, thank you again very much. And I can't wait to see you at Expo. Thank you, Daniel. All right. Bye, everyone. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast today, it would really help us out if you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
I am Daniel Scharf. I'm the host and founder of Startup CPG. Please feel free to reach out or add me on LinkedIn. If you're a potential sponsor that would like to appear on the podcast, please email partnerships at startupcpg.com. And reminder to all of you out there, we would love to have you join the community. You can sign up at our website, startupcpg.com, to learn about our webinars, events, and Slack channel. If you enjoyed today's music, you can check out my band. It's the Super Fantastics on Spotify Music. On behalf of the entire Startup CPG team, thank you so much for listening and your support. See you next time.